disease. And it's called undelivered sermon syndrome. I haven't preached for a month. Man, are you ever in for a treat? <laughs> I promise not to try to make up for lost time. We're in Isaiah chapter 40. We have been studying in Isaiah for some time. And uh, not looking at every single passage, every single verse, but we're, we're looking now at Isaiah chapter 40. And while you're finding it, let me just kind of put it in context a little bit. Isaiah was an 8th century prophet. He began his ministry sometime around 740 B.C. And he prophesied actively for... 50 to 60 years. We're not exactly sure when he died. It was during the reign of King Hezekiah. But when, when uh, or not Hezekiah, but Manasseh. But when Hezekiah went off the scene, as we saw at the end of chapter 39, we really don't have a lot more information about Isaiah. Manasseh followed his father, Hezekiah, to the throne. And Manasseh put Isaiah to death. There are some who think that the reference in Hebrews chapter 11 to those being sawn asunder as martyrs may have in fact referred to Isaiah because there is a very strong tradition, and, and again it's a tradition, but there's a very strong tradition that Manasseh killed Isaiah by sawing him in half. Not, not one of those magic tricks, you know, where they saw the woman in half and it's two women in the ends of the box, but in reality, that that's how Isaiah died. Isaiah prophesied and ministered during the reign of four kings. He began in King Uzziah's day. He was a good king. Jotham followed him, his son, and Jotham was a good king as well. Ahab, who was the son of Jotham, followed his father. He was not a good king. But Hezekiah, who was the son of Ahab, was a good king, and it was under Hezekiah's ministry that, uh, or Hezekiah's reign, that Isaiah kind of concluded most of his public preaching. Now, the book of Isaiah kind of falls out into three sections with one author. Now, some have looked at it and said, oh, there have to be three authors or at least two authors, because from chapter 40 on, it's all prophecy. And we know that really there is no such thing as prophecy. That's the, the idea of those folks that don't believe that God knows the future. In fact, they don't believe, some of them, that God exists, that God communicated to men. But God does exist, and God has communicated to men, and God does know the future. He knows the ends from the beginning. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, reveals himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And since God is not bound by time, in fact, he is the creator of time, all the things that you and I see in sequence appear to God as one significant now, a present And so the end from the beginning, from our perspective, is no problem for God. He sees and knows all things. In chapters 1 through 35, uh, we saw God revealing to Isaiah the sins of his own people, and Isaiah bringing those sins before God's people and calling them to repentance. 
And then in chapters 13 through 35, uh, God kind of takes a little survey of all the nations around and points out their sins. And he's saying that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. The first portion of Isaiah focuses a lot on judgment. Sprinkled throughout that, though, are little indicators of mercy and grace. And that there is going to come a time in the future where there will be blessing for God's people. It's in that very portion of Scripture, chapters 1 through 35, that we learn about the Millennial Kingdom. That we get some of our Christmas card verses, you know, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. While the bulk of it is on judgment and calling people to repentance, there interspersed are testimonies to God's mercy, God's grace, God's willingness to forgive. We get to chapter 36 through 39, and you remember that's the story of Hezekiah and the impending Assyrian invasion and how God, in spite of their sin, delivered them because Hezekiah was a godly king. He was a godly man. And instead of doing what his father Ahab had done, looking around and trying to solve his problems without God, Hezekiah brought the problems to God and said, God, you solve our problems. And God did. But those days are past now when we open to chapter 40. At the very end of Hezekiah's reign, he makes a very, does a very foolish thing. You remember God had healed Hezekiah from a disease. In fact, God says, I'm going to give you, you know, no more time. You put your house in order and you're going to die. And Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed. And God, in his mercy, granted him 15 more years of life. But we read in 2 Chronicles that Hezekiah failed to make a good return for the favor that God had granted him. You know, God, when he grants us privilege, when he grants us favor, when he grants us entrance into his kingdom, he does expect something in return. He expects obedience. He expects to be honored. When we become a part of God's family, he expects us to fulfill those family responsibilities. We're, we're all in families, and, and there are jobs in our families that we have to do. I remember as a little boy growing up, I had two big jobs that I seemed to have trouble doing. One was emptying the dehumidifier, and the other was taking the trash out. Those were my jobs, and occasionally, Dad would have to remind me, Hey, kid, you're a part of this family. You need to do the jobs that are assigned to you. Well, as part of God's family, we have some responsibilities. Hezekiah took those 15 years that God graciously granted him, but he failed to make a good return. One of the things that he did was kind of brag on himself and not on God, when some emissaries from a tiny, tiny little town, a little place called Babylon, 
came. They'd heard about his illness, and they heard about his recovery, and they thought it was wonderful. And so the king of Babylon sent some guys to go bring good news to Hezekiah and bring him a gift and pat him on the back. And Hezekiah became proud. And he said, oh, this is Roger's paraphrase. Guys, you think that's something? Come here, have I got things to show you? And he gave them a tour of the kingdom and he showed them the palace and he showed them the armory and he showed them the treasury and he showed them everything. And they went back home. And Isaiah came to Hezekiah and he said, who were the guys that came? Oh, they were emissaries from little tiny Babylon way over there in the east. Isaiah says, what all did they see? I showed them everything. And Isaiah says, well, one of these days, not in your lifetime, they're going to come and they're going to take everything they have seen. They're going to take your kingdom. They're going to take all the wealth, all the treasures, all the people. It's all going to Babylon. That's exactly what happened. Roughly a hundred years later, well, seventy-some years later. A hundred and forty years later, God brought that Babylonian captivity to an end. It lasted 70 years. And so about 70 years from Hezekiah's time until the captivity, and then another 70 years, another 140 years altogether, that's when chapter 40 opens. Isaiah's dead and gone. Hezekiah's dead and gone. All the people of Hezekiah's day, all the people of of the years leading up to the Babylonian captivity, they're all dead and gone. Now it's the descendants who are coming finally after 70 years of imprisonment. They're coming back into the land. And this is the message that God gave to Isaiah to give to them all those years later. And it's a message of comfort. It's a message of hope. That's something that I want us to grasp. I want us to get a real good handle on that. When God brings affliction into our lives, and especially because of our disobedience, because of our failures, He does so in hope. He does so in the idea that the affliction will cause us to think and cause us to look to Him and cause us to change. And God wants to give us hope so that when we have, as Peter says, when we've come to our, Paul says later, we've come to our senses, we have hope. We know that God has not thrown us away. God has not written us off. God still has a plan and a purpose for us. In fact, in chapter 40, we are catapulted into the future. I mean the long distant future. I mean what has not yet even happened in this world. Listen as I read. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, 
for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill be brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Oh, Zion, you who bring good tidings, Get up into the high mountains, O Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and His arms shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His work before Him. He will feed His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Wow. We have some really distinct periods of history here. First of all, we have the comfort coming out of the Babylonian captivity. We have the comfort that comes and is announced through John the Baptist and is accomplished through Christ on the cross. And then we have the joy and the comfort that comes when the nation of Israel comes to know their God and recognize Him for who He is and what He has done. And we find ourselves standing on the threshold of eternity in the millennial kingdom. You say, all that in those 11 verses? Let me see if I can help us see it. Starting out in verse 1, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. It's said twice there. The Hebrews didn't have comparisons of adjectives like you and I have. When they wanted to emphasize something, they couldn't say good, better, best. They would repeat a thing. Comfort. Well, comfort's a good thing, isn't it? That's great. But comfort, comfort is even better. Even better. Why not three? Well, I think because the third one is not possible until the eternal kingdom. We still live in a fallen world, don't we? We still are subject to all the, the temptations and the sins of this world. We're still subject to all the disease and disaster and death and war and famine and interpersonal relationships and all the brokenness that comes with living in a fallen world. But in spite of that, even though the very best is still yet to come, there is comfort, comfort. There is lots of hope in this world. 
Comfort my people. I like this in verse 2. It says, speak comfort to Jerusalem. The Hebrew literally says, speak to the heart, to the lay. Speak to the heart. You know, sometimes we think God doesn't hear or maybe doesn't care about our problems, our trials, our tasks, our struggles. That's not true. God says to his prophet Isaiah, you speak to the heart. I don't know if you've ever had some real heart-to-heart -heart conversations with people. We use that phrase, don't we? Where we try to speak to someone's heart. And what we want to do when we're doing that is to communicate our love, to communicate our care, to communicate our concern. We want to speak in ways that touch them emotionally and spiritually in the very core, the very depth of their being. That's what God is doing through Isaiah to a group of people that Isaiah had never seen. It was that group of people that would be coming 140 years later out of the Babylonian captivity. God wants Isaiah to speak to their hearts on his behalf. Do you know that's what pastors try to do every Sunday? To take the Word of God, which is God's communication from Him to us. It reveals His heart. It reveals His character. It reveals His actions. It reveals everything that we need to know about God. And, and we try to communicate it to your heart so that you're equipped to go out into this world, which is a broken, fallen world. It's a mess, a disaster. But you're able to live in it and thrive in it because you understand the heart of God. You've had a heart-to-heart -heart talk with your Savior through His Word. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem. The heart in Scripture is often used as the seat of our emotions, of who we are. For example, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, it says, Be anxious in nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You can talk to God about anything. And then it goes on in verse 7, and it says, And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart, and your mind in Christ Jesus. Your emotions and your intellect. Isn't that what gets us in trouble? Our emotions get way out of control. We have emotions, don't we? God has emotions. Do you know that God has the emotion of love? But His love is very different from yours and mine because ours is broken. His isn't. We sometimes love the wrong thing. Sometimes we put simple sentimentality for love, and we don't have the right kind of love. That's not true for God. Do you know that God gets angry? 
Scripture says that God is angry with the sinner every day. Ooh, we didn't like that, did we? You and I often express our anger, that emotion, all wrongly. We, we just, we fly off the handle, we yell, scream, pitch fits, throw things, break things. We, we, we direct our anger to the wrong place, to the wrong person. We have anger, but we, it's all broken. It's all out of place. It's all wrong. God's anger is perfect. Always directed at the right place, at the right time, for the right reason to accomplish the right purpose. But when we come to know Jesus Christ, He guards our hearts and our minds in Christ. Jesus. Apart from Christ, we don't have that blessing and benefit. But in Christ, in relationship with Him, we can have stability in our emotions and stability in our intellect. And that doesn't mean that we're stoic and that we don't feel any emotions. No, we do. We feel those emotions, but we feel them properly. We feel them in relationship to God, and we allow God to direct them and correct them when they're going in the wrong direction. And it means that we have an intellect now that is guarded and guided by God. We still think all kinds of thoughts, but we think the things of God because we saturate our minds with the Word of God. And when, when our minds begin to stray, we can appeal to God to help us bring them back into the way that they need to go. Beloved, this is a very personal God with whom you and I have a relationship. And He understands our emotions. And He understands our intellect. And He wants to bring us comfort to speak to our hearts. Notice what He says here in this context. Her warfare is ended. Would that be important for people who have experience warfare and captivity, occupation, if it will. That's even worse than occupation. Occupation is where you're still living in your own land. But, but theirs was a captivity. Theirs was an abduction. They were taken from their land and they were brought to Babylon and they were forced to live in a foreign place. Psalm, I think it's 132, says... How can we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? We've hung our harps on the willows. Our spirit is broken. We're not even, we're not even in our homeland. We're strangers in a strange land. Would those folks have needed comfort? Absolutely. Because their warfare was ended. What was their warfare? Well, they were at war with God. They wanted to worship idols. They had all kinds of idols there in Jerusalem. In fact, in the very temple of God, various southern kings had set up idols to worship. Hezekiah, you remember, cleaned out all that stuff when he took over from Papa Ahab. They were at war with God. But now they're not at war with God anymore. You know, after the Babylonian captivity, Israel was cured, for the most part, of her idolatry. Unfortunately, the pendulum swung the other way. 
And now the, the Pharisees were the ones who were becoming so strict and so rigid and so whatever that they were keeping people from understanding who God really was. They externalized everything. They made it a form. It wasn't an idol. They, they, they weren't worshiping Ashtoreth and Baal and Ishtar and all those folks. They, they were worshiping the one living and true God. But there was no breathing room there. But they were cured of idolatry. Even today, Israel is in unbelief. The vast majority. They're still rejecting Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That's why I say this passage of Scripture goes from the Babylonian captivity all the way to the end of the tribulation. At the very threshold of the millennium. Because ultimately, Israel is going to turn to God in repentance and acceptance of Jesus as the Messiah. That's why it says later on, she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The Babylonian captivity was the first judgment. The Roman occupation and dispersion was the second. And Israel's still feeling the effects of that today. Oh, they're back in their homeland, almost. They don't have all of it. And what they have of it, they do not have sovereign control of. It's still contested. They're still in unbelief, rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. They're still receiving that correction, that discipline, that punishment for their sins. But at the end of the tribulation, when all the nations have surrounded Jerusalem and they're ready to wipe Jerusalem off the face of the earth and their weapons are not only there but pointed up because here comes Jesus and he delivers his people and suddenly the light comes on and Zechariah 14 becomes a reality. And they see the one whom they have pierced. And they realize it was Jesus. And they accept him as their Savior. Then their warfare against God is over. Are you at war with God? Are you and God having a little fight these days? Maybe you're here this morning and, eh, yeah, you might agree that God exists, but you don't really know Him. Maybe there's some circumstances in your past that you think, oh, if there was a loving God, He would have never let this happen. He would have never done that. Maybe there are things that you don't understand about God, and because you don't understand them, you're kind of at war with Him. And you're not giving your allegiance fully and completely to Him. Beloved, don't be at war with God. He's a lot bigger than you and me. He does things that you and I can't understand. But when we understand His character, then we can trust His actions. We may not understand them, 
but we know that God never does anything that is contrary to his nature. We know that God always is at work in the lives of his people. And we know that God can take that which is broken and marred, destroyed by sin, and he can make it new and whole. That's why Jesus came. Don't be at war with God. Whatever the problems are, bring them to him. And like Hezekiah, who took that letter of threat from Sennacherib, marched it into the temple, laid it out before the Lord, this is Roger's paraphrase, and says, help! What are you going to do about it? That's a life by faith. To take all the stuff, all the brokenness, and take it to the Lord and say, Lord, here's the mess. What will you do about it? And he will. He'll speak words of comfort. He'll speak words of peace. He'll, he'll come to you with joy and forgiveness. And the warfare will be over. Verse 3 begins to reveal how this is going to happen. You know, we've, we've, we've had a glimpse there at the end of the Babylonian captivity. We've had a little glimpse at the end of the tribulation period. How's all this going to happen? Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. By the way, in Matthew chapter 3, this is applied to a guy named John. He was a cousin of Jesus. Uh, Mary and, and his uh, mother Elizabeth were relatives. I don't know if they were sisters, but, but the John and Jesus, on the human perspective, would have been cousins together. They didn't live in the same town. So John was a little bit familiar with Jesus, but it wasn't until God called him into the wilderness to preach and he saw the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus that he realized that, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. But he was a voice crying in the wilderness. What was it that John said? He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word repent means to change the way you think. Change your way of thinking. Repent. You think you're all right with God. You think everything's going to work out just fine. You think that because God is a God of love, God's going to let everybody into heaven, no problems, no questions. You think that. Proverbs says that there is a way which seems right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. You see, we need to stop thinking about God from our perspective and start thinking about God from what He has revealed in His Word. Yes, He is a God of love. But He is also a God of wrath. Yes, He is a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness. But He is also holy. And He will not allow rebellion to go unpunished. We need to change our minds. We need to repent. 
That's what John was saying. The Jews had built up this whole system of what they thought about God. And he says, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's about to break in. That's what the voice crying in the wilderness was all about. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. This is the millennium. I wish we had time to look at it all. Oh, goodness. I wish we had time to... I, I, what, I intended to be kidding about that undelivered sermon. <laughs> this is so rich. Man. In the millennium, there will no longer be physical impediments to the movement of people and the dissemination of the truth of God. You know, today, those mountains out there, they're beautiful. I like them. I walk in them. I hunt in them. But they're an impediment. Do you realize that at one point in American history, we were, right where you're standing right now is considered the far west? <laughs> Why? Well, because... We couldn't get over those mountains. I mean, you and I get in an airplane and in four or five hours, you're getting off in San Diego or Sacramento or probably not Seattle these days, but you know, you're, you're getting off over there in the, in the Pacific Ocean. That was not the case before. And when Columbus stood there in, in Spain and peeped out over the Atlantic, he couldn't even see it and it took weeks the pilgrims took weeks to come over here. And the spread of the gospel has been hindered simply by the topography of this world. But that won't be true in the millennium. God's going to change everything. Every impediment will be removed. Every problem will be resolved. And the whole world will see the glory of God. The great glory of God. And in case you're wondering if this is really going to happen, don't worry. Verse 5 at the end. All flesh shall see it together. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. God has said it will come to pass. And it will. So here is another little thing. Cry out. What shall I cry? All flesh is grass. You know, Moses in Psalm 90 said it this way. The days of our age are threescore and ten, seventy years. And if reason, by reason of strength, fourscore or eighty years, yet their labor is sorrow and it's gone. He lived sixty, seventy, eighty, ninety, hundred years. Like my one aunt there in Fulton County who was 13 days short of 104 when she died. Like that. It's gone in an instant. All flesh is grass. Ecclesiastes says one generation comes, another generation goes. 
You know, the winds go here, they go there, the world turns, generations come, generations go. The ones that come forget what went before them. They think they've got a brand new invention. Everything that's been is going to be again. Everything that is has already been. We might dress it up a little bit with electricity or something like a new coat of paint or something like that, but at the core, it's all the same. And it's always been. But the word of our God stands forever. So when you're in the midst of life and everything's changing and you wonder whether or not it's going to make a difference and you're thinking you're kind of like a flower of the field that's here today and tomorrow it's thrown into the oven, don't worry. The Word of God stands forever and God has promised that He will never leave or forsake His children and that we will be with Him in glory forever. You haven't been forgotten. God knows your name. And you're important to him. Well, in a hurry, we're going to try to finish this up. Verses 9 through 11 is an encouragement to Zion, to Jerusalem, to be what God always wanted the Israelite people to be. The major proclaimers of God's truth to the world. You who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountains. Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift your voice with strength. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. That word behold means pay careful attention. Examine carefully. It's a word of intensity. And notice, it appears at the end of verse 9. It appears in verse 10. It appears in the second half of verse 10. God wants you to pay attention to this. Because here comes God. Leading his people. Carrying those with young. The picture, you know, it's a beautiful picture. You've seen mothers, haven't you? Carrying their little ones. You've seen a mother kitten. Carrying her little ones. You know, from one place to another. So that they're safe. You've seen that kind of care expressed in all kinds of ways. When will you see how God expresses that kind of tender care for his people? It'll be amazing. Beloved, our God, who is holy and righteous and just and who visits the sins of people upon them, is also a God of mercy grace and care and love and comfort. Ezekiel says that God takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn to him and be saved. Ezekiel chapter 33. That's the God who appeals to this world today, to you and me today. Maybe you've never come to Him. Maybe you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. Maybe you're still at war with God. Stop. Stop being at war with God. Instead, come to Him and be at peace with Him. And let Him transform your life. Let Him speak to your heart 
And even though you may not understand and have answers to all of your questions, as you begin to know the heart of God, you begin to realize that maybe you don't need answers as much as you need Him. And if you're here today and you know Christ is your Savior, but you're going through some hard stuff, draw near to the God of all comfort. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that the affliction, this is Roger's paraphrase, you can look it up this afternoon. The afflictions that Paul experienced resulted in comfort, which now Paul can share that comfort with others who are in the same kind of afflictions and experiences, and then they can share it. You know, that's how God works. We become His representatives, sharing with those who are hurting the comforts that we ourselves have received from God. So, beloved, the struggles, the trials, the problems that you're going through, they're, they're not without purpose, they're not without meaning, they're not without value. Allow God to work, receive the comfort that He brings, and then share that comfort with others. Because when we do it God's way, He brings healing. He brings joy, even in the midst of sorrow. He brings hope, even when it doesn't seem like there's hope. He brings peace when we need it most. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you are the God who comforts us in all our affliction. Father, we pray that you will continue that good work which you have started in the lives of your children. Help us not to be at war with you. Help us not to try to handle life in our own sinful pride and with our own wisdom. But rather, Father, help us to turn to you, to allow you to work, to do your amazing, amazing work of grace, and to bring the comfort and the hope and the peace and all the things that we so desperately need. Father, I thank you for your word, because it's in your word that we find the truth that we need to live every day. This world has all kinds of ideas, but Father, they all lead to one place. That's to death and the grave. Lord, your word leads to life. Help us, Father, to know your word, to live it out in our lives each and every day. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.